Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hello and welcome to the History Today podcast. In this episode, King John and the Siege of Rochester and the Mysteries of Tibetan Buddhism. Firstly though, a quick plug for our all-new app which is available now for iOS, Android and Kindle Fire. Download it today take a look at our special issue on the history of fashion. A new exhibition at the Welcome Collection in London explores the history of Tantric Buddhism. Entitled Tibet's Secret Temple, the exhibition delves into the many myths and interpretations of Buddhism as practiced in the country. History Today contributing editor Kate Wiles caught up with one of the exhibition's curators, Ruth Gard, to find out more. Um, So first of all, could you maybe uh, tell us a bit about what the exhibition is? Yes, the exhibition's sort of heart and centrepiece is a series of murals that were painted in the 17th century for the Dalai Lamas. Um, Those murals are in the meditation chamber of the Lukang, which is a temple in Lhasa. Um, And they essentially describe and depict a spiritual journey towards enlightenment, um, believed to be the swiftest path to enlightenment, And essentially that was done, that was achieved through yoga and meditational practices. And it's um, all related with Tantric Buddhism then? Yes, so all of the practices that are depicted in the murals uh, come from the the Tibetan Tantric Buddhist tradition, um, which in itself was um, imported from India uh, in the 8th century, or legendarily believed to to have been brought by an Indian Tantric master, Um, who was called in to Tibet by the then ruler uh, in order to quell the troublesome um, Tibetan pre-Buddhist deities and spirits. So he did that. Um, He came in with his trident, his attribute, which he's always depicted holding. Um, And he essentially subdued the the Tibetan deities and figures who were causing um, sort of problems um, and Buddhism was kind of grafted onto those early Tibetan traditions. So it's not so much an offshoot of Buddhism as emerging of different traditions. Yes. Yeah, so, well, Tantric Buddhism is 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 a lineage, and within Tibet, it then became sort of a hybrid um, tradition that, as I say, kind of 
was grafted onto pre-existing Tibetan traditions and then it itself kind of um, developed into several different lineages itself. And what is, I mean, there are a lot of myths, I assume, about Tantric Buddhism, which Mm. don't, what you've already said, doesn't seem to mesh with the public or popular conception of it. What does it involve in a nutshell? Um, Well, um, I guess one of the um, sort of myths or or misconceptions might be um, when people imagine um, sort of Tibetan monks, they would see, they would have that picture of the sort of, in the sort of, dark red gowns and sort of shaven-headed um, monks, that would be a picture, at least I imagine, of, of, of Buddhism in Tibet. But Tantric Buddhism is really very different. It was, although some of it, some of the practices would have been t- um, carried out within monasteries, it was really um, expanding practice to well outside the monasteries and well outside the monks' uh, usual lifestyles, i.e., uh, well, celibacy for a start. Um, it's also not... Um, an intellectual tradition so it's not about being able to understand the doctrines as such it's about a practice which is very embodied so tantric buddhism is is characterized by focusing on the body uh, and this obviously is shown through the yoga through the meditation through the dance practices that we explore in the exhibition Um, it also very much um, relies on um, um, the the negative forces of emotion and desire that monastic traditions might usually try and renounce. So you'd okay. be suppressing um, greed and desire and and longing and fear and all of those kinds of negative forces. Whereas in tantric Buddhism, you are harnessing those same forces and trying to transform them into something creative and positive. Um, and that sort of negative emotional force is is something we explore in probably my fav- one of my favourite and most dramatic rooms in the exhibition, which is um, very dark, uh, and all of the iconography in there is very much uh, to do with sort of dismembered body parts, to do with skulls and blood and flaying, um, entrails, yeah. these kinds of things, which, which are iconographical details. They don't represent an actual practice per se, but they have very um, crucial symbolic uh, meaning about the body and and fear and death. Yeah. So there's a very strong connection then between the physical and the metaphysical. Yes, so the uh, there's an extremely strong um, connection certainly between the mind and the body. Um, the belief that uh, you need to prepare via the body but via the subtle anatomy which is um, kind of drawn from early Indian and Chinese medicine. Um, so there's this sense that there's kind of essences and energies that run through the channels of the body and that by optimizing their um, movement through the channels you then prepare the mind for the um, meditational practices that lead ultimately to nirvana yeah and there's all sorts of um, artifacts kind of in the different rooms as you move through going towards the inner temple do they serve a practical function in the practice uh, yes absolutely yeah. so um, for example um, we have Uh, sort of paraphernalia relating to tantric ritual which would include things like skull cups uh, bone um, costumes um, and uh, flaying knives uh, drums and trumpets made of flaying knives but disemboweling and yes only only as far as i can uh, iconographic okay. uh, so there was no actual um sort of uh, ritual involving that kind of uh, activity it was all a visualization process okay. so some of the tantric rituals would involve you 
visualizing yourself being dismembered and offered up to hungry deities now that may sound quite gruesome to us but actually that is all part and parcel of this sort of celebration of the idea that the body is 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 immaterial it is something to detach yourself from like the ego both are essentially empty ephemeral and that we need to kind of celebrate its its uh, that ephemerality in order to to overcome things like the fear of death for example yeah. and have these practices then changed over time is it you know has it evolved since its first inception well um certainly you would if you were to go to tantric rites today the the kind of highest lamas would certainly have these this paraphernalia with them they would wear the bone uh, costumes you would see um, skull cups and drums and all those kinds of um, that sort of um, array of objects would still be would be used in symbolic ritual um, I think one of the most interesting elements of the evolution of Tibetan tantric Buddhism in particularly nowadays would be how it's developed since it's um, kind of export to the west yeah. so obviously in the mid 20th century when after the chinese uh, invasion and the dalai Lama himself fled he was accompanied by many tibetans themselves who took a lot of these objects with them and in trying to kind of adapt to a kind of western audience um, certain ab- aspects would have been particularly emphasized certain aspects might have been de-emphasized um, and sort of different interpretations um have, have have occurred in the West, which yeah. has kind of shaped Tibetan Buddhism and indeed Buddhism as a whole. So it's had a knock-on effect back into Tibet? Well, um, I'm not sure that it would have changed um, substantially people's day-to-day practices in Tibet, but certainly in the West, there's an emphasis, for example, on the kind of meditational practices, the reflective and contemplative things, because obviously over here we're very, um, you know, the zeitgeist is mindfulness, mm-hmm. And um, there's also a lot, and the Dalai Lama has has kind of prompted this himself very much. There's a lot of scientific research into um, Tibetan Buddhist practices and its relationship to the the brain, the relationship to the body, and how we might benefit um, quite quite yeah. for, on a scientific basis. How we can benefit from those practices, how they might change our the the, the brain, the actual functioning of the brain, the moulding of the brain. So that's in that's what I think of as 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 an interesting element in the evolution, mm-hmm. and that's something that we focus on in the in the final interviews in, yeah. in the exhibition. Okay, Ruth Gard, thank you very much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Our thanks to Ruth Gard. Now, in the December issue of History Today, we have an article on the siege of Rochester, an episode in the First Baron's War of twelve fifteen. The author of that piece is Mark Morris, and he spoke about it this week with History Today editor. Paul Lay. The 800th anniversary of Magna Carta has been marked by numerous events, exhibitions and publications. As the anniversary year comes to a close, we're delighted to welcome the distinguished medievalist Mark Morris to the offices of History Today. Mark has written a superb biography of King John, subtitled Treachery, Tyranny and the Road to Magna Carta. And in the December issue, he reminds us that the original incarnation of MC collapsed soon after um, it was uh, first issued and specifically Mark writes about the siege of Rochester. Can you just set the scene for us as to why uh, Magna Carta collapsed so quickly? Well you've got to remember before Magna Carta they were already up in arms the rebels 
and they declared war on John um, in the spring of 1215. So Magna Carta was a, a, a peace settlement to try and stop the war, try and get both sides talking. And it, it was pretty clear, I mean, it seems pretty clear in retrospect that Magna Carta was never going to work. The, people, the thing that people always mention is the security clause, the fact that if John... Uh, transgressed any f- in future, if he broke any of the conditions of Magna Carta, the barons were effectively allowed to make war on him. So it licensed rebellion or war against the king. Um, and John issues Magna Carta, it's very clear, in bad faith. So there's some on the baronial side that know that, that this is kind of a pointless exercise, a talking exercise. And King John is never going to honour it. And that's pretty clear. John must immediately send um, messengers to the Pope because the Pope condemns Magna Carta um, in the autumn of 1215. Um, and he immediately starts recruiting foreign mercenaries. So they, both sides, um, and I was about to say that the sort of the hotheads on both sides, but I think really the hotheads, the realists on both sides, realise that this is, there's only one way this is going to end. This is uh, either with their destruction or John being deposed. And they've been planning to depose John for years. I mean, I sometimes find myself saying, when I'm talking about this on the sort of festival circuit, that they come up with a plan B, which is to get rid of John. But that had always been the plan A back as far as 1208. They'd been plotting to get rid of John. They come within a whisker of assassinating him in um, 1212. So it's really Magna Carta that's the, the, the experiment that doesn't work. And they come they're back by the autumn of 1220 to a much uh, simpler solution with let's just get rid of him and offer his crown to the King of France. So both sides are gearing up to renew war. Both sides are looking for reinforcements from the continent. In John's case, foreign mercenaries from Flanders to crush the Magna Carta barons. And in the case of the barons themselves, they are looking for support from the son of the King of France, Louis. So in that, in that context, with people looking across the channel, the southeast initially becomes the crucial theatre. The barons took London in the spring of 1215, and John is mustering his army on the Kent coast at Dover and waiting for reinforcements, an army that he expects to muster or materialise at the end of September at Michaelmas. And between those two, so John is gearing up for an attack on London, between those two you have the crossing of the River Medway, which is controlled by Rochester Castle. So the struggle for Rochester is going to determine the outcome of this initial uh, stage of the war. And this is a seven-week siege that takes place here. Yeah, well, the siege itself is quite well known. I mean, the siege, recently they've celebrated it in Rochester itself. They did a big Sonne Lumiere. Um, they've done many things in the past. There was even a pretty dismal film made about it uh, a few years ago called Ironclad. And we've even had a Rick Wakeman <coughs> opera. We've had a Rick Wakeman opera. So the siege is very well known. Uh, there was, I did a television programme about it many years ago. But um, when I was looking at the, the build-up to the siege, the the the, um, the weeks leading up to uh, John arriving, it became clear to me that the build-up had been misunderstood. You see, the thing is, with John, um, for the first time in English history, we can be sure where John is more or less on a daily basis because John, at the start of his reign, um, made his chancery clerks enrol all his orders, all his letters and writs are written down. And because they're place-dated, so given by my hand at Windsor on the 3rd of August, for example, you can work out where John is pretty much on a daily basis. So we always knew that John turned up to Rochester on the 13th of October. The assumption was always, however, that the rebels had occupied it just 48 hours earlier Um, And that was on the basis of a chronicler, Roger of Wendover, saying they only had two days in which to forage and get supplies. Now, Wendover is a very interesting chronicler, but um, he's not always terribly reliable. And in this case, it seems fairly clear that he's giving one person's version of events. 
Um, and it was clear from looking at another very well-informed chronicler called the Anonymous of Beitoun that, in fact, um, the rebels had occupied the castle much earlier, as early as mid-September. And that, that was because the Anonymous of Beitoun's um, uh, informant was based in John's camp. And what he says about John's movements in reaction to the Caesar of Rochester, you can compare with his known itinerary. Um, so it was actually very interesting looking at those two sources, the official source and the chronicle source side by side. One of the, the interesting things was you can see um, towards the end of September, John moves west um, he, from his base at Dover, Canterbury. He moves west, about 35 miles to West Kent, and he's crossed the line of the Medway, which um, is interesting because we have another chronicler, Roger, uh, Ralph of Coggeshall, uh, who tells us that John sent ships up the Medway in an attempt to destroy the Medway Bridge, which would have cut the rebels in Rochester away from their, their main base in London, which was a failed attempt. So it, it, all of a sudden, by looking at this evidence um, side by side, it seemed to make much better sense of the, the weeks building up to the siege. And the other thing you mentioned uh, was the Archbishop of Canterbury. Stephen Langton. Stephen Langton, yes. He's a crucial figure, of course, in, 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 in uh, 1215, um, as potentially one of the architects of Magna Carta, certainly a contributor to Magna Carta. Um, but Langton had always been uh, let off the hook in terms of Rochester. because to, Just to explain that, Rochester, since um, the early 12th century, had been uh, in the custody, in the keeping of the Archbishop of Canterbury. And John had tried at least twice in 1215 already, before the castle was occupied, to persuade Langton to hand it over. And Langton was kind of standing on his neutrality. Um, now, it was always known that Langton, at some point around mid-September, left England for the continent to go to the Fourth Lateran Council. Um, and so Langton, if, if, you, if you accepted Wendover's account that the castle hadn't been occupied until the 11th of October, then Langton was out the picture and off the hook. But if you move the occupation of the castle back three or four weeks, then Langton is very much back in the frame. And it's impossible to prove, you know, there's no smoking gun to say, oh, yes, the Archbishop definitely gave the rebels the nod. He's not personally present at Rochester. That would have been his constable. Um, but it does put him back in the frame. And John clearly felt that Langton was culpable because he sends this fantastic angry letter in December. Um, and these we know a great deal from these letters. They're absolutely crucial for yeah. this interpretation. Well, I think with... Um, the great thing about John, as I say, for the first time, not only do his letters obviously help to place and date him, but they obviously give you some insight into the psyche of the man. I mean, although it's, you know, uh, it's uh, through the lens or through the filter of his chancery clerks, um, there are certain phrases in John's uh, letters, like, you know, you are to respect, respect our peace, even if we granted it to a dog. You know, if you don't do this, we'll have your bodies strung up. Those kind of things you can't imagine the Chancery Clerk creating on, you know, off their own bat. So it does seem to be the sort of the authentic voice of of, of the king himself. Mm. Um, in this case, when uh, the the castle falls, as you say, after this this very bitter seven week siege, we have a letter from John to uh, his justicia Hubert de Burr, saying you are to kind of investigate, grill the garrison, and if, try and find letters from Langton to try and prove Langton's culpability. So, uh, and, and this is the famous letter in which John describes Langton as, as, a, as a barefaced traitor, manifest and barefaced traitor. So that, it, for all these reasons, I thought the siege was interesting. And, 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 and just because, really, I'm, I'm one of those historians that, um, it, it, you know, likes to get the story straight. I think if there's one, one bit of the job I do reasonably well, it's, you know, unpacking the story. And it was one of those happy occasions where 
Um, at first I panicked because I couldn't get the various sources to synthesize. Mm. And then I realized the reason was because there was a, a different story that hadn't been set straight before. Well, thank you, Mark. That's, that's excellent. And Mark's uh, article on the siege of Rochester is available in the December edition of History Today. Thank you, Mark. You're very welcome. And that's all for this episode. Thanks for listening. <laughs>